in my home church. I think I mentioned it in last week's prayer meeting, just for a, a few moments. Um, and then as I was thinking about it this week, um, it's sort of built up in me. So it's sort of a teaching that's actually something that runs all the way through the Bible. Um, and the more I've been thinking about it this week, I was doing a, a, a conference down in Florence with Pastor Cliddy Keith, and he got me up, and this just came out. Um, so I'm going to share it with you. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. So there's nothing, uh, there's not much structure to this at all, um, but it's something that's so clear uh, in God's Word that as we start unpacking this, as we start unfolding, looking at this, hopefully it will. It will build something in your spirit. Let's start in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And uh, we'll start at verse 9. In fact, we'll just read one verse. Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. I'm not a preacher, I'm just going to talk, is that okay? Yeah. I'm a lot better when I just talk. My wife says I always preach better when I don't preach. <laughs> she says I preach better when I don't know what I'm talking about as well. So <laughs> that might be a good sign for tonight. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. Why? Why? I mean, why, why does God have to arrive in a cloud? But, you see, we read this stuff in the Bible and we think, well, obviously, you know, God turns up in a cloud. Do you turn up in a cloud? <laughs> it's not really a, a mode of transportation we, we rely on. <laughs> you know, I flew here on a, on a uh, 747 jet. Um, now, I saw lots of clouds, but I wouldn't have trusted a cloud to get me here. <laughs> I wouldn't have jumped out of the plane hoping that a cloud would, you know, catch me and carry me in. But God, God says, I, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear me speaking with you and always put their trust in you. Then Moses told, uh, sorry, then Moses told the Lord what um, the people had said. So, if, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, especially Exodus, Romans, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you'll notice that whenever God does something, the first thing that turns up is a cloud. Now just think about that. Always. In fact, it's so essential that um, the whole nation of Israel, when they were trying to work out what route to take every single day, every single day for 40 years, the first thing they would do would be to look at where the cloud was, the pillar of clouds. They wouldn't even set out that day until they first knew where the cloud was. And if the cloud lifted, they would set out. And if the cloud settled, they would stay camped. And uh, Moses was, was not actually a very good leader. 
Moses' entire leadership strategy was based on looking at a cloud. If the cloud moved, Moses said, okay guys, we're going. If the cloud stayed, Moses would say, okay guys, we're staying here. Moses would have been, if you wanted Moses to have a five-year plan leadership strategy, he would have summed it up by saying, we get up in the morning and we look at the cloud, and whatever the cloud does, that's what we do. <laughs> that's it. We follow the cloud. So when God says to Moses, and then he tells Moses to reveal this to the people, he actually says, I'm going to come in a cloud. The people are not going to see God. Well, let us sink in a moment. The people never saw God. They saw a cloud. In fact, even the glory of God was only ever seen in a cloud. They never saw the glory of God. They never saw the manifest glory of God, except that it was manifest in a cloud. So we should start to see that the cloud is pretty essential. It's pretty important for us to understand how God wants to reveal himself, okay? So this is what happens in Exodus at the beginning of their journey. Let's just, let's just jump ahead. Jump to um, Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. And um, go to verse 15. Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. So when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. So it's a big cloud. It covers the mountain. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. Have you noticed how many times God mentions cloud? More than any other now. He's talking about something that is essential. When God keeps mentioning the same thing, that's the central focus of what he wants us to look at. So he's saying, the clouds are going to come down. When you see the cloud, the clouds are going to last for six days. I'm going to speak to you out of the cloud. So he said he's going to come in a cloud. He said the people are going to see this cloud. This is going to be the focus for the whole week. And then the voice is going to come out of the cloud. To the Israelites, verse 17, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Verse 18, then Moses entered not the glory of God. It's important that you see that. Then Moses entered the cloud when he went up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Cloud, 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 cloud. God is showing every aspect that we, we deem important that God reveals to us. His voice, his glory, his presence, his consuming fire, his direction, his visual, what we call the Shekinah, the, the manifest dwelling of God, you know, the, the, the Kavod, Kavod, the, the, the glory of God, everything is always linked, even the voice of God, 
God never uncouples it from the cloud. Can you see that? It's important that you see that, otherwise if we move on you might get lost. Right? It's always linked to the cloud. So, if you were an Israelite, looking at this, you would link the cloud to everything that's important. The glory, the manifest presence, the voice, the direction, everything that's, that we deem important, that God wants to give us, is tied up with the cloud, yeah? No cloud, no voice. No cloud, no glory. No cloud, no consuming fire. No cloud, no direction. No cloud, no, no, cloud, no presence. Nothing to look at, nothing to feel, nothing to stimulate our sensations. Everything revolved around this cloud, yeah? And if you've read Exodus and Leviticus, you'll realize it's always about the cloud. This is what the central focus of the Israelites, the Jewish understanding of God was. Now they knew the cloud wasn't God. Let's just make that clear. The cloud isn't God. But God says, I'm coming in the cloud. So what's important is not really whether God's here. What's important is not really primarily whether God's voice is being heard, whether we're entering his glory. What is essential is that the cloud's there. And if the cloud's there, all the other things, the voice, the glory, the fire, the presence, it is there by default. So if we can, if we can make sure the cloud's there, obviously we're using metaphors here now, don't get a weird on me. <laughs> I can't see a cloud yet, but you never know what might turn up. If the cloud's there, everything else will fall. Because God comes in the cloud. Moses enters the cloud. The voice comes out of the cloud. The fire and the glory is contained within it. So, this cloud's pretty important, yeah? Mm -hmm. yeah. So, Let's jump ahead 2,000 years. So that's well, 1,500 years, that's around 1,500 BC. So Jesus arrives. When Jesus chooses to reveal his glory to his disciples, what does he do? Matthew chapter 17, but it's in Mark and Luke as well. He takes them up the mountain. Yeah. As Jesus is praying, the disciples fall asleep. That's what happens in church. And then suddenly they become aware that Jesus is being transfigured. Metamorphosis in Greek. He's being changed. Something's changing. And then Peter, because now he's in the presence of God, Jesus is God. You all agree with that? In the presence of God, the glory of God is coming, it's shining out of Jesus, his face is shining with the glory of God, face shines brighter than the sun, the manifest glory of God is coming out of his clothes, so he's shining with a brightness beyond anything that, that could be uh, created on earth, and Peter says, it's good to be here, let's put up some tents, then what happens? A cloud comes down. 
cloud comes in. You read it there, we'll not turn to it, Matthew chapter 17. And then when the cloud comes down, it says the disciples were terrified. And then it says, out of the cloud, a voice speaks. This is my beloved son. So it's got to be God the Father speaking. Listen to him. And they entered the cloud. Now, were they already in God's presence? Yes, they were with Jesus. Were they already experiencing the glory of God? Yes, the glory of God was coming out of the face of Jesus, shining through his clothes. Had they already heard God's voice? Yes, they were listening to Jesus. They heard him praying. But when they entered the cloud, it changed everything. They were terrified. They fell, they fell on the ground. They, they couldn't even, they didn't even know what to look at. The voice they heard was different than the voice of God in Jesus. Now remember, Peter has already confessed the week before, in the same place Israel fell, Peter's already confessed, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So he already believed Jesus was God. But now, because they're in the cloud, God's voice is very different. It creates a fear. It creates something so awe-inspiring, it changes their entire ability to function. What's changed? They've entered the cloud. Or rather, they've entered the cloud. The same cloud Moses entered. They're now experiencing God in a very different way. And the only real picture we have of what this means is that they're now in the cloud of God. So the cloud's pretty important, yeah? Pretty important. So, you'll notice throughout the Bible, Genesis right through to Revelation, when God wants to reveal something new, he always brings a cloud first. Let me give you an example. Even in Genesis, when God destroys the earth, in the flood of Noah, Genesis chapter 6 onwards through to 9. When God begins a new creation with Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his sons, he gives them a new covenant. Yeah? <coughs> he says, Never again will I destroy the earth with the flood. Springtime and harvest will endure. You, you, you all know the covenant he gives. And he says, As the proof of the covenant, I will set my rainbow where we think in the sky. He doesn't say in the sky. He says, I will set my rainbow in the cloud. So, the sign of the new covenant to Noah and his family, they only saw that covenant if they looked in the cloud. Yeah? Not in the sky. God doesn't mix his words. If God says the sign of the covenant's in the cloud, he means the cloud. It doesn't mean it's up in the sky. Actually, a rainbow, a rainbow isn't in the sky anyway. Any scientist will tell you that. But if you look in the cloud, you'll see the covenant. Why is God showing us that? He's showing us that the cloud 
the presence of God, all these things that Jesus shows us what it is, all these things that Moses shows us what it is, it's only when you're in the cloud you really understand what the covenant is. Wow. You won't get the covenant by looking at the sky. You'll understand the covenant by looking in the cloud. And that's in Genesis. That's at the beginning of the new creation, which is metaphorical of our new covenant, our new creation that we have in Christ. Yeah? The cloud is always the sign that God's doing something new. When God wanted to bring revival to the apostate nation of the northern kingdom of Israel, after the nation had split, he sent a man called Elijah. And there was three and a half years of drought. There was no rain for three and a half years. And Elijah said, there is now going to be, the revival's gonna come. God's gonna turn his people back to God. And he went up onto Mount Carmel and God did the miracle of fire came. What was the sign that revival was coming? Seven times he prayed. And he sent his servant seven times to the mountain go and look. And on the seventh time, the servant returned. He says, what do you see? He says, I see a cloud. Well, that's not a sign of revival, is it? I mean, if I did England, there's a lot, there's a, the sky's covered in clouds every day. You've been to England. You never see the sky. It's wonderful to come here and see the sun. I've not seen the sun since last September. Because the sky's covered in clouds. He said he saw, he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. What did that mean when revival was coming? Why did, why, why did a cloud mean revival was coming? Why did it even mean rain was coming? It's only a small cloud. Because Elijah knew what the cloud meant. The presence of the cloud. He says, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Why? Because it's not a cloud. He knew the covenant of God, what God told him. Three and a half years, then the rain's coming. Three and a half years, then the revival's coming. So when he saw the cloud, he knew that the cloud was the sign of the covenant. He knew that the cloud was the sign of the presence of God. He knew that God's voice came out of the cloud because he knew the law of Moses. So he knew everything that the cloud represented. So that when he saw the cloud, he knew God was going to do everything he'd already said. Yeah. Cloud, cloud, cloud. Look for the cloud. Even Jesus, when he was talking about his return, he said, you know that when you see a cloud in the west, you know what's going to happen. How is it you don't know when the Son of Man is going to return? He linked his return to a cloud. And when they said to Jesus at his trial, are you the Son of the Blessed One? What did Jesus say? Yes, I am. And you will see me coming with the clouds. Why is he coming with the clouds? Does that mean if it's a cloudless day, Jesus can't come back? <laughs> so if you get up one morning and it's just blue sky, Jesus is not coming back today because he's coming back with the clouds. But there aren't any. Obviously, that's not what it means. You see, every time Jesus speaks, Jesus expects us to understand the prophetic significance of the words he's using. If Jesus says he's coming back with the cloud, he expects you to know what the cloud is. 
I don't actually think it necessarily means or is just referring to his final second coming. I think he's saying, if you know what the cloud is, you know I've already come. What does the cloud represent? The presence of God, the voice of God, the covenant of God, the manifest glory of God. Jesus is saying, you will see me coming with the clouds. So in other words, if you don't see the cloud, you'll not see me. If you don't see the cloud, you'll not be a God. If you don't see the cloud, you'll not understand the covenant. You'll not see the glory, you'll not have the presence. You'll not have everything the cloud represents. So the cloud is important. Yeah. The cloud is very important. He always describes it. The cloud, in fact, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll know that when John has a vision of the Lord Jesus, he's actually sat on a cloud. Why? Doesn't he come in a spaceship? I've heard some people. Have all kinds of weird theories about how Jesus returns. Well, look, he comes with a cloud. He's actually sat on a cloud in Revelation 15 onwards. 14 or 15 onwards. Why? Because what the cloud represents. Okay? So, having understood a bit of this, let's go to Exodus chapter... Now, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. I just want to use one verse here, then I'll explain this a little bit. Um, verse 11. So we understand what the cloud is from just a few of the scriptures we've looked at. There's many more, dozens, maybe hundreds or so more. Remember, Jesus always links his presence, the presence of God with the cloud. In fact, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Isn't actually just what it says. It says we'll be caught up to meet him in the clouds in the air. So the cloud is a manifestation of everything that God wants us to reveal. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse, uh, verse 11, Ezekiel has a vision of the priests, the elders in the temple. I'll just read this one verse. Uh, verse 11. So he's seeing the, the leaders of Israel in the temple. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel. Jazaniah, son of Shaphat, was standing among them. Each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. What the priests in the tabernacle were supposed to do, the duty of a priest in the temple was to create a cloud. Did you know that? Did you know that? The role of a priest, he was given incense to burn. And as he burned the incense, it would form a white cloud. And the more incense that was burned, the bigger the white cloud got in the temple and in the tabernacle. You see, here's what I want us to really focus on tonight. When we talk about a cloud, 
we tend to think of a cloud as something up there that is distant, that we can see from afar, and occasionally, if we get in an aeroplane or we fly, we might get close to them. But generally speaking, clouds are something we don't enter. Yeah. Clouds are something we observe from afar. But that isn't what an Old Testament priest would have thought. Because according to the Levitical priesthood code, from Exodus right through to Deuteronomy, and it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, a priest was given incense to burn. And when he burned the incense, it would create a white cloud. Now can you see where we're going here? The cloud was something a priest created. Go to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 
But just in the same way that the Old Testament priests could not enter the presence of God until there was first a crowd, so you cannot enter the presence of God unless you have first entered the crowd. The real issue is, what is the cloud? Because the cloud's not God. God dwells in the cloud. The cloud is not the voice of God. The voice of God comes out of the cloud. The cloud is not the glory of God. The glory of God is in the cloud. It's not the fire of God. The fire of God's in the cloud. It's not the covenant. The covenant's in the cloud. It's not the testimony. The testimony's in the cloud. The cloud is only created the cloud is only created when the incense is burned. Now, if you know your New Testament, you will know what that incense is. Because the New Testament is pretty clear <laughs> what the incense is. I mean, even in the Old Testament, they understood the symbolism. Because David in the Psalms said, my prayers will rise to you as the incense. Now when you read the book of Revelation, on at least two specific occasions, the book of Revelation says the incense is the prayers of the saints. So that's at least three times in the Bible, when you get to number three, it's always a confirmation. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter is established. So, three occasions, God tells us our incense is the prayers and the praise and the worship we release. <laughs> when we release that, incense is released. When the incense is released, a cloud is created. Is there a cloud here? So good. Because if not, there's no presence of God, there's no voice, there's Come no Come on, that's so good. There's no glory. There's no fire. There's nothing. There's certainly nothing that we can experience. Because we can only experience it as we enter the cloud. The priest could only enter the presence of God when he had first created a cloud. If he went into the presence of God before he created a cloud, God says, I'll kill you. <laughs> Why do you think the disciples were scared when they entered the cloud? <laughs> they suddenly realized God could actually kill us. We have no real valid right for being here. God could kill us just because he wants to. He wouldn't have to justify it. Our sin alone would be reason enough for God to wipe us out. But in the cloud, we're protected. When Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offered strange fire to God, they came to God with their senses, but didn't create a cloud first, God killed them. Why did he kill them? Theologians argue about all kinds of reasons. Why did he kill them? Strange fire? Have they followed the procedure wrong? Were they not dressed correctly? Have they been drinking alcohol? All kinds of different reasons as to why they did it. I think the reason is pretty simple. They haven't created a cloud. Yeah. They thought, I'll just step into God's presence and do what I want. And God says, you're dead, boy. 
you don't come into my presence until there's the proper understanding of what the cloud is. You've not praised me, you've not thanked me, you've not prayed to me, you think you've got a right to just step into my presence. If there's no cloud there, you better not dare step into God's presence. The cloud is given for your protection. Why does God come in the cloud? To protect you from his glory. To protect you from his manifest presence. To protect you from the fire. The cloud is to protect you. It's not to help him. It's not his vehicle. It's our vehicle. It's not because he wants something to ride on. It's because he wants to put us in something. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit himself in many ways. So the cloud would be created and the, as the priest walked into the Holy of Holies. The Kodesh of Kadeshim. You would just be aware of a cloud covering it. It would be full of white smoke. But he would know that God was there. And God said, between the Ark of the, of the Cherubim and the Ark of the Testament, the Covenant, when the cloud's there, there I will speak to you. There you will hear my voice. There sins will be forgiven. There you will make atonement. Where? In the cloud. Day of atonement. The priest couldn't even see what he was doing. The priest couldn't see anything. All the priest knew he was in a cloud. So, we've got this cloud. So, when they set up the tabernacle, now the same pattern is described uh, 500 years later when Solomon built the temple. You find exactly the same pattern. When the priest went in and burned the incense and the cloud was created, the same thing that happened in um, in Leviticus is the same thing that happened in the first book of Kings when the priest son of Solomon did it. The, because the incense was released in the correct way, it says the cloud filled the whole temple so that the priests were unable to perform their duties, both occasions, just in the same way the disciples weren't able to do anything on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, it's very strange, I find this quite humorous, that God spends five books explaining what the duties of priests are, even down to what clothing they're to wear, and what oils to be put on them, and what bloods to be sprinkled, and is to be on their thumbs and their toes and their ears, and they've got to get dressed in a certain way, and have the certain sacrifices, and you've read it all there in the Torah, and God describes all this, and then when God turns up, they can't do anything. He spent two years training them, and then when God turned up, he didn't, he, they couldn't do a thing. They just laid on the floor. You see, when you're truly dwelling in the cloud, you realize actually it's God who does everything. We're just the recipients of everything that God gives us in the cloud. Is there a cloud here? Is there a cloud here? Jesus was always, even when he was sent up into heaven, his disciples were looking at him intently, and then it says they could see him no longer because he was hidden by a cloud. So where was Jesus? The last time the disciples saw Jesus, he was in a cloud. So this cloud is not something up there that we hope will come down to us. It's actually something that a priest creates 
through the burning of incense, yeah. So, if we're priests, and if the incense is our prayers and our praise and that what we release, if when we release that, it creates a cloud, then we can have a cloud here now. <laughs> if we create one, remember, the cloud isn't God. You can't create God. You can't say, I'm going to create God here. No, you can't. There's already here and you'll turn up if he wants. No, we can't do that. You can't create the Holy Spirit. You can't make him turn up. But what we can do is create a cloud so that the requirements are fulfilled so that we can encounter God. And how that's created is through the burning of incense. So, what is the incense? That's a pretty important question. Shall we look at what the incense is then? Okay, let's look at the incense. Let's look at the incense. Exodus chapter 30. Now, charismatic people talk a lot about the anointing. Have you noticed that? You notice they talk an awful lot about the anointing. Yeah? Yes. Come on. Some of them never shut up about it, let's be honest. <laughs> now, if you read Exodus chapter 30, God describes the ingredients that he uses in the holy anointing way. It's all four ingredients. And he describes that there in chapter 30. Now, in verse... Um, 34. God finishes describing the holy anointing. And then he describes the ingredients of the sacred incense. It's amazing how many charismatics can tell you all about the anointing, but can tell you very little about the incense. But to have an anointing without any incense achieves nothing. Because the anointing oil is what God puts on a priest. The incense is what a priest puts on God. You, you don't anoint God. Have you figured that out? He doesn't need anointing. He's God. He is the anointing. The Holy Spirit is the anointing. You have all received an anointing from the Holy One. The Holy Spirit who was given abideth on you. You've received an anointing if you receive the Holy Spirit. The oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Every priest could not function as a priest until first the holy anointing oil had been put on them. Prophets, priests, kings all had oil poured on them. We're all prophets, priests and kings. There's only two people, prophets, priests and kings. Jesus Christ and his bride, his church. So you have the anointing one. So I have an anointing. Well, what we do for you? <laughs> We've all got one. You see, we talk about it, it's not making special. That's not really the issue. God wants to anoint everyone. 
But after verse 33, when he describes the sacred anointing, the holy anointing oil, he says, now make the sacred incense that the priests are to release. We often talk about releasing the anointing. Actually, it's supposed to release the incense. If you don't release the anointing, God does. Come on. God releases his anointing on you. If you're a priest, you don't release the priest. Put it around sprinkling anointing on you. The priest was only allowed to anoint the priest and the temple and the sanctuary and the king, but that was a slightly different issue. No, the priest's role isn't to release the anointing. It's not just terminology. And God forgives our wrong use of terminology. It's a good job I'm not charismatic to get into heaven. Because we say the wrong words all the time. <laughs> Theologically, some charismatics, they, like they're praying over me, and I'm saying, Lord, don't answer that prayer. He said everything wrong. <laughs> and it's not about the anointing. It's about the incense. It's not what God's putting on you. It's what you're going to release onto God. Mm -hmm. You don't want to God. But you release incense. And in Revelation, it says it's the incense that ascends into God's presence. Mm -hmm. God says he smells the incense. Mm -hmm. Even in the time of Noah, when, when, the, when he smelt the fragrance, he says, you are not cursed. No longer will I curse you. Mm. Only when he smelt the fragrance. Not the anointing. The fragrance is the incense. So let's look at the incense then. So Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. Yeah, verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum resin, onica, and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts. The gum resin is the myrrh. And make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance, for themselves obviously, must be cut off from their people. The incense is what we release to God alone. It's not something we release to satisfy ourselves. It's never something we release to enjoy for ourselves, for its own sake. It's something that is holy and sacred to God alone. Giving him worship, we worship God alone. Giving him unlimited praise, only to God alone. Giving him all the glory, only to God alone. And it's wrapped up in this incense. So when this incense is released, the cloud is created and God can do what God wants to do. 
God answered me. God said, I would love to answer you, but you've not created a cloud yet in which we can communicate. God speak to me. I'd love to speak to you, but you've not created a cloud yet where you can hear the voice of God. God, give me the blessing of the covenant and the glory. I'd love to do that, but you haven't created a cloud yet in which I can show you my covenant, in which I can show you my glory. Lord, come upon me with the fire of the Holy Ghost. I'd love to do that. Will you please create a cloud so that we can share this? Because unless there's a cloud, God's not going to show up. Well, according to the Bible. Do whatever they tell him. Actually, we've got to sort of do what he tells us. Yeah? So, this cloud is created as the incense is burned. Yeah? And so in Exodus chapter 30, in Exodus chapter 30, we're told what the incense is, and it's got four ingredients. So, if the incense is essential to observe, uh, obtain all of these things, the ingredients into the incense are pretty important. Yeah? I mean, I love to eat food, but I only like to eat food if the right ingredients are used. <laughs> you know, certain food has to be made with certain ingredients, or you can't eat it. Now, this incense wasn't just burned um, in the tabernacle to create the clan. If you know your Old Testament rituals, you'll know that even when a sacrifice was given, the incense had to be burned as well. Because otherwise, any sacrifice you gave, if there was no incense being released, no cloud being created, God wouldn't accept the sacrifice. It's not just that you offered a lamb or a, a goat or a bull or two doves. You had to have, the Bible's pretty clear about this, the accompanying offering of incense. So that God could smell the aroma, so that a cloud would be created. It's not, it's not good just sacrificing things and expecting God to receive them. You've got to give a cloud of incense so that God can receive any sacrifice we give. So we've got these four ingredients that are mentioned here. Myrrh, onica, galbanum uh, and frankincense. Now, what do those four things mean? Myrrh, onica, galbanum, and frankincense. This is what the holy incense, the sacred incense, was. So, for us to understand what must be present for the cloud to be created, we sort of need to know what these four things are. Now, once again, in the Bible, we should sort of know what these four things are. So, let's look at the first one. The myrrh, the gum resin that they used in the sacred incense. By the word, myrrh is the ingredient that's also used in the anointing oil, the other elements. So, myrrh is pretty essential for something to be belong to God, to be yeah, accepted by God. Now, even just from your New Testament, you should have picked up on that. When Jesus was born, what was he given? Myrrh. Yeah? yeah? When he was on the cross, what did they give him to drink? Wine mixed with myrrh. When they put him in the tomb, what did they put in the tomb of embalming with 
every stage of Jesus' life, myrrh was present. At his birth, at his death, at his resurrection. When you read the Psalms, when you read the Song of Solomons, you will find that myrrh is the essential element, not only of the beloved bridegroom, but even the bride, her hands drip with myrrh. My beloved smells of myrrh. What is myrrh? There's no debate about this. Myrrh is a very clear um, ingredient that was used when someone had died. In fact, that's primarily what it was. That's almost exclusively what it was used for. The Egyptians used it in embalming. When someone died, they would cover their body in myrrh. That's why myrrh was put in the, in the tomb. They wrapped his body with the, with the myrrh because myrrh was associated with death. When someone had died, myrrh covered up the stench of death. It's in the anointing. It's in every aspect, the important aspects of the life of Christ. It's in... they would only release murder when they'd been a death. How do you enter God's presence? How do you enter into the fullness of God? How is the cloud created? You've got to die to yourself. Christ died. Even at his birth, they knew he came to die. At the cross, he was drinking murder. When he died, they could smell the murder. When they went to the tomb on resurrection uh, morning, Christ wasn't there, but they could smell the murder. The tomb was full of the smell of myrrh. To create the cloud, to enter the cloud, for the incense to be burned, you've got to die to yourself. That's what the myrrh means to God. When God smells the myrrh, he knows you've died to yourself. No man can be my disciple unless he takes up his cross, dies to himself and follows me, Jesus. That was the start. The first thing you have to understand if you want to follow Jesus Christ is to receive his life, you have to die to yours. No preconditions. We don't dictate to God what he can do with our lives. We die to who we are. Unless he hates even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus said that in all the Gospels. In fact, it's one of his most quoted sayings of all. It's the thing he said the most. We have to die to ourselves. Because then, only then can the myrrh, only then can the myrrh make us acceptable to God. A couple of years ago, uh, I take tours to Israel. Every two years, I've got another one coming up in. In September, and uh, a couple of years ago, my wife, uh, my son, and his future wife, um, we were in Jerusalem, and I always arrange for one day off in, in Jerusalem so that everyone on the tour can just go and look at something they want to look at. And um, on our day off, um, 
I wanted to walk down the valley of Gehenna, Ben Hinnom, the valley of hell. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to take my wife to hell for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Good date. <laughs> Are you going today, darling? I'm going to take to hell. <laughs> so, I, I just wanted to oh walk God. down this valley, go down to the Kidron Valley down there on the side of Mount Zion. And it's the word, the name of that valley, Gehenna. It's literally the word Jesus used for hell. And I wanted to walk and I wanted to feel that, try and get a feeling of this valley that is so evil. It's where it's where the children were sacrificed to Molech uh, in the Old Testament times. It's where the dead bodies were burned. It's where the rubbish pit was. It's where Judas hung himself in the field of Akel Damada, the field of blood. It's in Gehenna. It's down on that valley. And I wanted to walk down this valley. It's there's no there's no no buildings there. It's just a valley with cliffs on either side. And I just wanted to feel what I want to know what this place feels like. So we walked down this valley. And to start with it was quite nice. You would think of hell being quite nice, wouldn't you? <laughs> what a nice place. And then as we as we started to walk down this valley, I started to smell something. Now, in my previous profession, I used to deal in uh, properties, uh, housing projects I used to manage uh, in England. And very often, um, you would, someone would die in a property, and when you'd go to investigate the property, there'd be a dead body in there decomposing. And so after a while, you learn to recognise the stench of a dead body. You, you reckon, if you've ever smelled a decomposed body, it's, it's, a, it's a vile, awful smell. I mean, you can smell it for days afterwards. Even now as I'm saying it, I can remember that smell. I've smelled so many times. And so we're walking down the valley of hell, we're chatting away and, and pointing things out. I think, I can smell a dead body. It stinks. It's starting to make me feel sick. And I turned to my wife, she can verify this story, and I stopped and I said, I can smell a dead body. I said, well, there's no, there's no dead bodies here. I said, it's your imagination. You know, you're in, a, you're in hell. Jesus <laughs> killed himself here. You know, they sacrificed him. You, you know, it's psychosomatic. You're, you're thinking, of, you can smell it. We walked another hundred yards. And there was a monkey dead on the path decomposing. I'd smelt it as it the stench drift, drifted up the, the valley. I remember just stopping thinking, how weird is that? I mean, how often do you walk and do you find a dead monkey? <laughs> In the valley of hell. <laughs> <laughs> What's a dead monkey doing here? Who's put that there? The stench of death. That's what hell is. But when the myrrh's present, you can't smell the stench of death. Because the myrrh covers up that vile aroma. Myrrh has to be released in the sacred incense so that your death is now covered up with the fragrance of God. God doesn't smell your death. He smells the incense that's in the cloud. If there's no cloud, God just smells you. That's not good. The Bible tells us we carry around within our bodies the aroma of Christ. Mm -hmm. yeah. For those who are perishing, it is the stench of death. 
But the aroma of Christ is the incense in the cloud. So myrrh is essential. When the incense, this resin, was there in that incense, creating that cloud, God will accept that which is there. That which is dead to self and is now full of the aroma of Christ, God smells his soul. That's why when Jacob wanted to receive the blessing, when he went into Isaac, he put on the garments that the oldest son had worn. And when Isaac put the blessing on Jacob, it said he smelled the aroma yeah. that was on Jacob. God smells the myrrh when it reminds him of his son, when he was born, when he died, when he rose again, because it was myrrh that was present at all three. So he smells the myrrh. He smells the myrrh. It removes the death. It removes the stench of death. In the Old Testament, when a plague broke out, broke out, you remember the story that the people rebelled against God, and a plague broke, broke out and started killing all the Israelites. Moses said to Aaron, quick, grab your incense, burn it, so God can smell the aroma. And he says, when he burned the incense, the death stopped at that moment. People stopped dying. Why? He burned the incense. He created the cloud. God smelled the fragrance, not the death. People stop dying. So myrrh is essential. Now, the next ingredient, which depending on which Bible translation you have, um, onikur. I'd be surprised if anyone knows what onikur is, because theologians don't. <laughs> You see, one of, the, one of the rules of Bible exposition and, and uh, translation is if you want to know what something is in the Bible, you read it within the context of the Bible itself. So you cross-reference a word with where else that word is used, and then by triangulating the way that words are used, you come to a, an idea of what God means by that word. The problem with Onika is it only occurs once in the entire Bible. <laughs> so we can't do that. It doesn't occur anywhere else. Now, people argue about what it is. Some people think it's some kind of mollusk shell. Some people think it's some kind of plant. Some people think it's some kind of root. And no one's 100% sure what it is. Now, I always think it's really interesting when God tells us to do something and then doesn't tell us how to do it or what it is. <laughs> I think He's always trying to reveal something to us. You see, one of the ingredients of the incense to create the cloud is something we don't know what it is. Now if God wants to do something in your life, if God wants you to experience something, if God wants to show you something, manifest his glory, his presence, there's a very large part of that you won't really know what it is. If you can explain everything God's doing in your life, it's probably not God. <coughs> If you can explain the presence of God, it's not God. If you can explain everything that's in that cloud, it's probably not the cloud you're in. One of the essential aspects of this incense and being in that cloud is that you can't actually define it or explain it. But you know it's real, you can smell it. You can sense it. You're aware of it in some capacity. 
when Paul was calling to heaven, he said, I saw things I am not permitted to tell you what it was. I cannot begin to describe what it was. Even when John in Revelation writes Revelation, he's saying it was sort of like this, but I can't really explain what it was. I saw someone who looked like a lamb. I saw the one who looked like a son, like a son of man, but he was more than that. He shone with a radiance that was above anything I can describe. He spoke with a voice that was like a waterfall, like a trumpet, like a multitude. His face was like the sun shining in all its glory. Well, all I know about the sun shining in all its glory is that you can't look at it. So I don't know what it looks like. Onika. Now that's how it is translated in our Bibles. But actually it's a Hebrew word. Um, and in the original uh, Hebrew it's, it's Shekelet. Now this is really interesting. Because although as an ingredient that word doesn't occur, the word Shekelet does. Because the word Shekelet actually means something in Hebrew. It means to roar like a lion. Holy that's not typology, that's what it means. Now, that's not reading as a metaphor, that, that's what it means. Wow. So when you release the incense and enter the cloud, it roars like a lion. Now you know when we said in Revelation that the, the prayers of the saints rises as incense before the throne. It says it twice in Revelation. Here's an interesting thing. When the angels pour out the bowls of incense, it says a mighty angel comes out from the altar and roars like a lion. When the incense is released by the priest, heaven roars like a lion. That's what the incense is. We release the incense on God. God dispatches an angel who interprets what the incense is and gives a roar like a lion. Then it says the next verse, the seven thunders spoke. And then in Revelation, John is told, do not write down what the seven thunders said which has confused theologians for years. Because often you will hear the interpretation that you cannot hear or know what the seven thunders are. Well, John did. He just wasn't allowed to write them down. It doesn't mean he didn't hear them. When Jesus says, Father, glorify thy name in John's Gospel, it says the Father spoke from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It said those present heard thunder, some heard an angel. So when God speaks from heaven, on earth it sounds like thunder, some people hear the voice of a, an angel. What's actually happened is Jesus released incense and heaven roared like a lion back, which sounded on earth like thunder. When you create the cloud and release the incense, heaven responds with a roar with an angel, with thunder, with the voice of God. 
That's the second ingredient of the incense. When we create the cloud. Third ingredient of the incense is Garbana. Now we know what this is. This is actually a bitter root. Now here's a strange thing about the incense. We often think of the incense as being a beautiful smell. But galbanum smells awful. In the, to the natural senses. It's, it's described as having a pungent, vile aroma that is a stench that irritates the senses. Why are we to do that? I find it really interesting that when anyone entered the presence of Jesus, not all the time, but often in the Bible, you'll find that when people insisted on entering the presence of Jesus in the New Testament, a lot of the time, everyone present was really annoyed with him. Have you noticed that? You remember blind Bartimaeus? When he heard Jesus was passing by, he shouted with a loud voice, Son of David, have mercy on me. So he's crying out to God to come into God's presence. And what did all his friends do? Did they help him? No. What did they say? Shut up. <laughs> Be quiet. You are getting on our nerves. You are annoying us. We want church to be nice. We want to hear Jesus speaking in a soft, gentle voice and calming our nerves and giving us peace. You're releasing an annoying sound. In the natural. What did Jesus hear? Was Jesus a dog? No, it says Jesus stopped. And drew his attention to the thing that was annoying everybody else. What? And said, come here. So the very thing he was releasing brought him into the presence of God. Even though it was annoying everybody else. Now that's not just a one-off illustration. That is the usual procedure. Remember the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman? She came to Jesus saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it says the disciples said to Jesus, Send her away, she's getting on our nerves. <laughs> she keeps calling out to God. We don't want that, do we? We don't want someone crying out to God. We want a nice meeting. <laughs> And it says, it says she persisted on releasing that annoying... Have you got a friend that never shuts up and you just wish to be quiet for a few minutes? <laughs> probably don't have them in the ESA. We've got them in India. <laughs> you just want to say, you shut up. Stop it. Just be quiet. What did Jesus do? He said, woman, you have great faith. Your daughter was healed from that moment. What was she doing? Releasing something that was annoying to the carnal senses, but pleasing to God. Over and over again, you'll, you'll find that 
pattern, that formula, you know, get whether it's the guys who, you know, insisted on getting their paralyzed friend into the, the presence of God. You know, we read that story, they climb on the church roof and start smashing the roof in to get someone into the presence of God. I was a pastor, that's not going to make me happy. No guys, please don't smash the church building to get to the presence of God. What did Jesus say? Great is your faith. Your sins are forgiven. You are healed. What did all the teachers of the law say? What? You can't say that. Galbanum is irritating to the natural senses. But it's pleasing to God. If you are going to assess what you do according to whether it's acceptable to those around you or to other people, you're not going to create a cloud. You have to release that which is acceptable to God. Even if it is annoying and unpleasant to the people around, you've got to create a cloud. Now a cloud of smoke irritates the eyes. Unless you're in the cloud, no glory, no covenant, no voice, no fire, no presence. No incense being burned. We have to get through the flesh barriers that restrict us. And I want to call out to God what you people think. That's what God thinks. I don't want to create a nuisance. You never create a nuisance to Jesus calling out to you. You never create a nuisance for Jesus by burning the incense and creating a cloud. No. That's what he's taught us to do. The final ingredient, the fourth ingredient, which is where we get the word incense from, it actually comes from the frankincense. Frankincense is a resin that comes from the bark of a tree. Out in the desert. <coughs> Again, present in the life of Jesus. So what does the frankincense represent? Well, here's an interesting thing about frankincense. Frankincense does not have a smell at all. It smells of nothing. Until you set it on fire. God inhabits. 
is what is in you that we put on God. What do we put on God? The very spirit he put within us. Out of our innermost being will flow the river of living water. Out of our innermost being will, will flow the, the, the ruach, the numa, the breath, the spirit, the wind of God. The life that God has put in you. That incense of what all these things represent. You flow that out. The cloud is created. God can do what God wants to do. But if we don't release the, the cloud, God can't do anything. Because we die. But if we release the cloud, the fire can burn. The incense can be released. God smells the incense and God can answer the prayers and fulfill everything he has for us. But no cloud, no God, no cloud, no nothing. Our job as priests is not to function as priests, but to release the cloud. Then we'll function as priests as we burn the incense. So, is there a cloud here? Are you living in a cloud? Is a cloud being released? Are you burning the incense? Are you dwelling in the presence with the fire, with the voice, with the fullness of God? Everything that dwells in that cloud. That's our inheritance as priests. Not just to ascend into a cloud, but to have a cloud released from within us so that we dwell in it. That's what the priests did. That's what the disciples did. That's what the saints in Revelation are doing. We dwell in the cloud. I think I've given enough. <laughs> So when you read the battle cloud in the Bible, remember that's you. You're supposed to be there. God gave us the privilege. He's anointed us to do it. It's what we need. Let's stand in the presence of God.